0: If you wanted to fake the moon landing, you would have to fake all of these documents. And it just seems to me, it's way easier to just go to the moon. (laughs) Has anyone considered that? (laughs) Just go to the moon. That's easier than faking all of this. Hello everyone. That was the voice of popular science educator, Neil deGrasse Tyson pointing out what he sees as the fatal flaw in moon landing conspiracies, that it would be easier to go there than to fake doing so. Today's guest disputes this, and not just because Mr Tyson is begging the question. Randy Walsh is a commercial pilot, who, after being inspired by the moon landings as a child, became cynical of them later in life. This cynicism turned to research, with a particular focus on the Saturn rockets. Several years and two books later, he is convinced man never walked on the moon. In this interview, I ask Randy about his journey and research before moving on to some more philosophical questions regarding how this issue can best be resolved. I start out by asking how this all started for him.
1: My journey actually began when I was in grade school here in Canada. I had actually just moved to Canada a year before. I was actually born in Ireland. I, mean, I remember as a, a young child we were led down from class into the gymnasium of the school and you know we were told that there's this big momentous thing happening it's historical most of us at that at that age didn't realize I didn't realize what we were really watching but I did understand, I understood enough to know that it was a very significant event in history. So we watched Apollo 11 launch that very morning. I was in in a gymnasium with about a thousand other kids, and I was somewhere in the middle. And I just remember looking at this little black and white TV at the very front and, you know, nothing compared to what you have today. So but, but still, nonetheless, I mean, for, for a young child, um, that was quite a moment to be part of history, even though we didn't fully understand as kids what we were actually watching. But it was still, nonetheless, a fascinating, uh, a fascinating watch.
0: And were you inspired by space travel growing up? Did you have an interest in the moon landings and that kind of aspect of science prior to becoming cynical of them?
1: Yes, very much so. From that moment on, I was ordering you know back then we had these order catalogs um, again, you know we're showing our age here but we didn't have internet of course and so we had these order catalogs and I was ordering everything that was related to the Apollo missions you know I was ordering I was buying models the the Apollo command module, the lunar module, the Saturn V rocket, um, so on and so forth and I was actually ordering stuff through the mail. I was not only buying models of the Apollo command module. I was actually buying paper models that NASA itself, I believe at that time were selling or subsidiary or, of or, that company, uh, that agency was selling. So, yeah, uh, I mean, it had a profound impact on my life for years. I mean, I think in part it inspired me to become a pilot, although not fully, there was other reasons why I became a pilot, but that in part motivated me more. So definitely had a very, I would say at that time, positive impact, I don't call it so much a positive impact anymore, but at that time, um, I looked on it as a positive impact.
0: Okay, and what was the journey then to becoming cynical? Now, I'm curious, because I know from reading your books that it's not just the moon landing you're cynical of. I think it would almost be impossible to think that the US government lied about the moon landing, but they tell the truth about everything else, right? So did you have a general emerging cynicism of the government prior to becoming cynical of the moon landing? Or was there like a distinctive moment where you saw something and suddenly a penny dropped, and you went, well, wait a minute, with with the Apollo missions.
1: Yeah, so to be fair, I dove into the JFK assassination in my early 20s, but that in no way altered my view in any sense when it came to the Apollo moon missions. That actually happened quite by accident. I was well into my late 30s when I had that moment where I started to question the Apollo moon missions. It had nothing to do with cynicism. We were all cynical to a point when it came to any government, but not on the level that I am now, of course, but back then, my journey started into the Apollo missions with me still having an element of trust in governments, uh, my own government and governments around the world, some element of trust, not a lot, but it had no bearing on the Apollo missions. I always seem to separate that from the other conspiracies, for example, as I just mentioned, the JFK conspiracy, it just seemed separate because I looked upon that as science. And I was somewhat into physics at that point because I was training to be a pilot. So I was picking up a lot more on that. And I I believe in the foundation of physics. That's how we live our lives on a daily basis, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So when it came to the Paul missions, I never, I never made that connection, even though I was reading and well versed by that time in the JFK assassination conspiracy theories. It had no bearing on my foray into the Apollo Moon missions until one moment, that one moment that dropped one night when I came home from work.
0: Just before you say that, I think it's interesting, right? Because probably the overwhelming majority of people listening to this podcast have a lot of cynicism about a lot of government events and really uh, would would be into, to some degree, like the the geopolitics. I put a lot of geopolitical stuff out about the the US empire and all that, the Kennedy assassination, 9-11. But for a lot of people why i titled this series the lunatic fringe question mark for a lot of people who are into that kind of thing the moon landings that's just too far come on that's now now you're discrediting the whole movement and that was my interest really to pursue this of like well why are there these questions that even radical people are not supposed to ask? You, even in impolite society, you don't question that. That's just you're know, being silly now and you're you're discrediting us. So that was my inspiration to delve into this, really, that that, that divide. And um, yet, yeah, please proceed and say, well, what was this moment then for you that brought about cynicism towards the Apollo missions themselves?
1: Well, yeah, and just to elaborate a little more on your point you just made, and it's a very valid point. I always looked on the Apollo missions as a um, source of inspiration because I always, I always thought, okay, this is man's greatest achievement in the 20th century. I never really questioned it outside of that. And even though I was aware of some conspiracies and some distrust going on with the government, I just, I, I never made that connection. Maybe I didn't want to make that connection. I don't know. I, I mean, I can psychoanalyze myself till the, uh, till the cows come home and you can come up with many different answers. But it was that one moment, as I said earlier, and that moment happened one night when I had come home from work I had turned on, back then we had arts and entertainment, which back then was a fairly good channel. Now it's, it's just gone crazy. Um, But back then it was a very good channel. Um, They had a lot of good documentaries. And I just happened to switch on arts and entertainment on TV. And I was kind of walking back and forth, just unwinding from a long day. And they were talking about the documentary was, was on one of the Apollo missions. Now, I wasn't paying too much of attention until one of the astronauts caught it caught my ear when one of the astronauts was talking and he was making a description like this so i'll just describe what he was saying and i'll i'll fill in the rest afterwards he was describing how on their way back to the moon they were using the moon as um a slingshot gravity for gravity effect and i knew right away because i knew a little bit about the apollo missions at that moment that time that they were talking about apollo 13. Because Apollo 13, according to the official version, the Apollo 13 had um, an explosion or oxygen tank explosion uh, in a service module, which caused them to um, have to shut everything down. They were still hooked up, of course, to the lunar module. They were on their way to the moon at this point. And they had to use, long story short here, they had to use the uh, moon's gravity as a slingshot so they're going to swing around the back of the moon and then slingshot towards earth that was a way to save um power because at that point they had very limited power resources left because of the explosion so then they were going to swing around the dark side of the moon and then um use the lunar module engine to finish the journey back to earth and what Stuck out of my mind was when he said, and I believe it was Jim Lovell, if I'm not mistaken, he was instructing the other astronaut. When I fire the engine, no matter what you do, keep the Earth within a grid pattern on the window. Now that's basically what he said, probably not verbatim, but that's you know paraphrasing. And 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 that got my attention. I, I remember, I remember, I stopped. And I looked at the TV and I I said to myself, you got to be kidding. You're talking about using visual reference to navigate a spaceship, a crippled spaceship at this point, a very damaged spaceship. You're using visual reference to put yourself back on course. Uh, two hundred forty thousand miles away from Earth. Now, at that time, I used the figure two hundred forty thousand miles away. The actual accident or the actual firing of the engine was about one hundred fifty thousand miles out at that point. But still, nonetheless, I found it very peculiar that they were using visual reference. Now, I know as a pilot, at that time, I had a private pilot's license, and I know from I had enough experience to know what um. Uh, flying, um, when you're flying navigation and using visual references, how easily you can be lost, how easily you can get off track. And that was the first moment that I thought, wait a minute, that doesn't seem right to me. You would expect something a little bit more sophisticated in their navigational approach. Um, Even with um, the damage that was done, you would expect a little um, something more sophisticated. And that was my moment right there. That was when okay, something doesn't seem right about that. And that wasn't the moment when I actually thought the Apollo Moon missions were faked, but it was certainly what set me on my journey. It was that one specific aspect of the Apollo missions: navigating back to Earth using visual references. Uh, uh, that really that bothered me at that time because I was thinking, "Wow, I know a little bit of navigation, and that's a sure way to get lost, and especially up in space if you're." degrees off your track you could be thousands of miles off your intended course you could end up being marooned in an elliptical orbit for eternity i mean i remember thinking that at that point so that was my moment that that was the moment that was the turning point for me
0: okay and what i I don't know if you started researching this avidly the next day or time went by and you casually became interested but how did that play out and and what particular areas uh, were, were you drawn into
1: well, I was, drawn into the te- I was drawn into the technology and no, it didn't happen right away. I mean, you know, we all have daily routines. We all have, you know, other things going on in life. We're, we're not astronauts. We're, you know, we have to work. We have other commitments. It started probably, probably in the mid 2000s when I, I decided to take another, I didn't even have a computer until the early 2000s. For a lot of people who are listening to this, we had no internet when I was growing up. So for me, that was becoming a novelty. So I was learning how to navigate on the uh, internet. And of course, it gave me the opportunity to research many things. And I started researching the Apollo moon missions and just looking more into it. And it wasn't until about three or four years later, I still couldn't get this thought out of my mind in terms of that a documentary Uh, on Apollo 13, and I wanted to look further into that. So I used that opportunity to look further into it. And after about two or three years of researching this, I was like, I don't know what I'm getting on the internet. Am I getting the truth here? Because the internet's kind of like a library. You go into a library, 90% of the books in the library are crap, right? You've got to know how to research and sift through so, but the, for the books you're looking for, the really good ones. And that's kind of the way I sort of approached it with the internet. Okay, I don't know. Anybody can make a video. Anybody can say it's a hoax and they can give the reasons why. But I need, to, I need to go deeper into this. And that's when I started ordering books. And I started ordering NASA documents as well as reading the official version. I read many books on the official version, some of which I sourced in both my books, as well as the conspiracy books. Because for me, it wasn't enough just to read the conspiracy books. I had to know what the other side was saying. I had to know what both sides were saying. And that was, for me the only way I can make a determination that I was satisfied with and that I can go forward with is reading both sides of this. So it took about five, six years of bits and pieces until I finally, finally got into some serious um, research in terms of NASA documents and books and so on and so forth, as well as, as, as online information. And that started probably in about 2000, I don't know, 2014 or so. And that led up to my first book.
0: Okay. And in your book, you focus particularly on the rocketry. Perhaps you yeah. could explain some like I appreciate this could go on, you know, for hours talking about the rocketry. Okay. And there are you have your own YouTube channel where you've gone into this in all the depth. So maybe you could summarize some of the, the your findings around the Saturn rockets.
1: Yeah. Well, actually, then that, that's something that anybody can do just because. I'm a pilot or commercial pilot doesn't make me an expert on rocket science. And I have been accused of not being a rocket scientist. Well, you know, um, I, I never bought into that, that I have no right to have an opinion because I'm not a physicist skilled specifically in rocketry and so on and so forth. Anybody can research this for themselves and come to their own conclusions. That's exactly what I did. What I will say is being a pilot gave me a little more insight into what to expect. And I was able to use that insight to go deep into the engines of the Saturn V uh, rocket, which launched the Apollo missions to the moon and specifically focused on the first stage, which was where the F-1 engines were. Now, let me explain a little bit about the F-1 engines. The F-1 engines were uh, actually developed were being developed in the late 1950s by the US military. And when Eisenhower had signed the decree um, enacting NASA, NASA, it was transferred over to NASA and actually not actually transferred over to NASA, sorry, it was transferred over to Rocketdyne. Rocketdyne was the manufacturer of the um, but it was under the supervision basically of uh, or they were working in tandem with NASA. There was a very interesting character and everybody knows this character and he's, he's quite famous. He actually wrote the first book on the Apollo moon missions uh, being a hoax. And that was Bill Casing. Now, Bill Casing has been criticized severely over the decades for his book. And, you know, the fact that he was basically uh, called a paper pusher. He didn't know what he was doing. He didn't know what he was talking about, but he was, he was actually obviously hired by Rocketdyne for a reason. And if he's hired by Rocketdyne, it means that Rocketdyne felt that he was qualified to read the data output from whatever engines they were developing. And at that time, they were developing the F1 engines. And what he discovered during his uh, three or four or five years, he was there from 1958 to 1963. And what he discovered was, is that the data output for the F1 engines was being falsified. And he quit in 1963 in disgust at what he had found, because by that time, the F-1 engines were being readied for the Apollo missions. Now, the reason why the F-1 engines are very important is because the F-1 engines were built, and still are, as the most powerful liquid-fueled rocket ever designed and built and used. Each rocket, each engine, puts out 1.5 million pounds of thrust. Now, to put that into perspective, you actually have two rockets. Uh, you have two Saturn rockets. You have the Saturn 1, uh, you have the Saturn 1B, and you have the Saturn 5. The Saturn 1 uses the H1 engines. And I think they, they use several engines in their first stage with a combined total of about, and don't quote me on this, but I'm a little bit off on the uh, actual figures, but it's about 1.4 million combined pounds of thrust. When you have the five F1 engines in the Saturn 5, you're looking at 7.5 million pounds of thrust. And that, power was needed to lift the hardware into low earth orbit in order for it to proceed on its mission to the moon. So they needed that F1 engines to make this work. What I started noticing with the F1 engines is that a lot of data had gone missing and all of the data pertaining to the F1 engines performance during the the Apollo missions were destroyed. Now I've had people come back and say, well, Randy, you know those. It's all documented. It's all on paper. We have it on record. But the actual source of that documentation has been destroyed, and that was, of course, the now infamous telemetry tapes. Because all the data from those telemetry tapes recorded everything from the very uh, first moment that rocket launched to the splashdown of the command module a week later in the Pacific Ocean. So. I became very suspect about the um, performance of the F-1 engines and it went deeper from there.
0: Okay. So with that, with the suspicions of the engines, would that apply to the manned and unmanned missions to the moons? Were they using the same engines?
1: Well, if you're using the F-1 engines and the F-1 engines are not working according to specifications, you have no lunar landing. You cannot get the hardware off the launch pad. You you just can't do it. You're talking about forty six forty six tons of hardware. That was a three thousand I believe a three thousand ton rocket, and of that forty six tons was included the command module, service module, lunar module, combined. And you needed that amount of power, seven point five million pounds of thrust, to get that rocket off the launch pad, that's just to get it off the launch pad, to launch it to an altitude of 40 miles per hour. So that launched up to 5,000 miles per hour by the time it reached 40 miles where the F1 engines were then discarded and jettisoned. So the F1 engines had to work perfectly from that moment of launch to um, an altitude of, um, I believe it was 40 miles. If uh, If the F1 engines were not working perfectly, you had no lunar landing. Those, that that, that moon um, that payload wasn't going to get into orbit.
0: Okay, two things I've heard you talk about here is, one, that from films of the Apollo 11 liftoff, mm-hmm. you can tell from the time period it lifts off to the time it hits a certain type of cloud and where those clouds are and aren't in the atmosphere that the rocket is going much slower than it should have done. And the other issue is the absence of human testing. The, yeah. they, the rockets weren't really tested very much. Um, And then you have all these successful missions, uh, whereas that's not typical. Most efforts to get anything to the moon uh, fail, but you have consistent like, well, there's what are the six, um, seven Apollo missions and they're all really successful because everyone comes home safely. But six of them are perfectly successful. So uh, could could you maybe speak to that aspect of the uh, of what you found about these the rockets?
1: It's very interesting. Uh, I do want to go back to one point, though, regarding... Uh, actually, I'm going to write this down. I'm going to go back to this point in a minute because it's very significant regarding what Bill Casing had discovered um, regarding F1 engines. But there were, in terms of the testing, there were two on-man launches of the Saturn V to test uh, the F1 engines. So that was uh, with Apollo 4 and Apollo 6. Now... Um, they were both unmanned. The first one, apparently, according to it. Now, I always say according to the official version because I've been accused of actually subconsciously endorsing the Apollo missions while you said that they, they launched. I said, no, I said according to the official version. So I always put that in. So if people find that annoying, please bear with me. But it's the way I cover myself because I'm a lot of times we're talking within the framework of the official version. So I will occasionally say according to the official version. So Apollo 4 launched. It was an on-man launched Saturn V, and apparently it worked perfectly. There were no anomalies that were recorded. Um, it was it was considered a successful flight, but not so with Apollo 6. Apollo 6 was a near disaster. Uh, Apollo 6, another, the second on-man launch of the uh, um, uh, Apollo 5 actually was a Saturn 1B launch. So Apollo 6 was the second Saturn V launch. And it was a near disaster. They had major problems with the F-1 engine cooling system. They almost faced an explosion of the uh, first stage, which would have meant the end of the mission anyway. And I remember watching an engineer who had worked on the Apollo mission. He said, if there hadn't been a crew on board Apollo 6, they would have had to abort. That's how serious it got. Now it didn't explode, but it did not reach full power and full capacity. Uh, it's full, uh, uh, sorry, full specification. It didn't reach full power. Let's put it that way. So it was considered near disaster. So it was actually considered a failure. And it was only from that. So what they, they had made some modifications to the F-1 engines and they decided, well, they need to launch it again. But this time they launched it. and, And this is an important point. They launched it seven months later under the Apollo 8 mission, which is the first the third Saturn V launch, first Saturn V launch using the F1 engines, but this time with a crew. And I'm wondering if the listener just picked up on something here, because they just said that they modified modified those engines to rectify the problems that they were having with those engines, but there was no testing in between. They just went straight from a near disaster to a launch with a crew seven, eight months later. That is a major problem for me. That is a major red flag. There was absolutely, there was no static testing done. There was absolutely no testing done further, further testing none of those engines to make sure that they weren't having the same problems that they were having with Apollo six. They went straight from Apollo six, a near disaster on man mission to seven months later to another Saturn five launch. Only this time it was manned, no testing. Now, if, if people don't find that a little peculiar, then maybe they'll find this a little peculiar because I want to read something. Uh, it's just a small paragraph regarding what I was just talking about. And then I want to go back to Bill casing. This was uh, written by an author. He's, um, he does a series of uh, American Space series, and he did a series on the Saturn rocket. And he has one here called the Saturn rocket 5, America's rocket to the moon. And his name is Eugene Reichel, if I'm pronouncing his name correctly. And he also works with the European Aeronautic Defense and Space Company. And here's what he wrote about what I just described. And the problems they were having with the F1 engines is specific to the combustion chamber. And so you'll hear what that, just to read what he says and we'll elaborate more on that. Quote, the spontaneous combustion instabilities never reappeared. Until the end, however, the problem was never completely understood. To this day, it remains a constant problem in large rocket engines for which an individual empirical solution has to be found. To the disappointment of the engineers, a model was never found with which they could generally overcome the problem." That to me is a loaded statement. They're actually telling everybody that they had a major problem with the F-1 engines. They fixed the problem with the F-1 engines, but they never found out what the problem with the F-1 engines was it's an amazing statement for um, anyone to make and anyone connected to the space agency it's an amazing statement to make and the reason why the, the f1 engine just gets a little bit technical but basically what was happening is is you have several components for the f1 engines you have You have the engine components on top. Then you have, next, you have the injector, the fuel injector. And below the fuel injector, you have the combustion chamber. And below that, you have the throat area. And below that, you have the nozzle, which everybody sees when rockets are lifting off. The problem was with the combustion chamber of the F1 engines. What was happening was, is the cooling system was breaking down. So the way this works is, is 70% of the propellant, when it went through the injector, 70% 70% would go through the um, these hundreds of tubes that were on the outside of the combustion chamber, while 30% went directly into the combustion chamber itself. And the reason for the uh, sending fuel or propellant through the hundreds of tubes on the outside of the combustion chamber was to absorb the thermal energy from the explosion. You had to keep this engine cool. You're we reaching temperatures of five to 6,000 degrees Fahrenheit. So if you couldn't find a way to stabilize those temperatures, you're going to have a distortion of the combustion chamber and it's going to lead to an explosion and the loss of the rocket. That's what was happening with the unmanned launch of Apollo 6, the second unmanned launch of the Saturn V. So there's a lot of instability within the combustion chamber of the F 1 engines. And as I said before, without the F 1 engines, you have no moon landing. You're okay. not even going to, yeah. So you're so, not, yeah. Sorry, go ahead.
0: No, uh, it's okay. Uh, Apollo 8 is now just, Tell me if I'm right here. Is that the first crew that orbit the moon and come home again? That's correct. Okay. So what I, I generally hear from people who are cynical of the uh, the landings is that they believe that NASA sent probes up and photographed the moon, and they believe that the Russians have sent probes up and photographed the moon, and and that's all real. It's the landing and the return that people are, are typically cynical of, and that part of the reason. Uh, they believe in, in the probes is because they need the photograph to be able to then fake the moon landings here on earth but if there's a fundamental problem with the rocketry would that affect even NASA's ability to send a probe up around the moon or indeed while well, the Russians are using different rockets but um the Russians one thing I learned in your book that it, it's something I feel I should have known this but this should be a commonly known fact but the Russians actually got a tortoise to orbit the moon that was the first creature to and I'm I i can not believe that that's not Something I knew. That sounds like something everyone should know. But what's your opinion on on just the unmanned probes that go up to the moon in that case?
1: Yeah, well, see, the the difference is that the unmanned probes are using far less power. So you're not using an F1 engine.
0: Oh, okay, okay. So that's completely, yeah, redundant. That's that question, right, okay.
1: Exactly. So I just want to emphasize one more point, one more time, that the F1 engines were specific to the Apollo moon landings, not anything outside of that. Like, for example, the Saturn V, which was a Saturn, sorry, Apollo 7 was a Saturn 1b launch. That was the first Apollo mission to orbit the Earth. And they used the H1 engines, not the F1 engines. The H1 engines produce a total of, I think it's about slightly over 200,000 pounds of thrust. So you're not facing the same amount of problems that you're facing with the much larger, much powerful F1 engines. You see, the Saturn, the Apollo 7 didn't have a lunar module on board. That was just, a, that was a low earth orbit mission. Okay. 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 So if I was to actually go with one of the missions that actually worked, I'd probably reluctantly go with Apollo seven, but not the rest outside of that, because they were using the F one engine. So when it comes to your, so in answer to your question is, is they were using far less powerful engines that had been actually in service for quite a few years launching on man probes. So it's very easy to launch an on man probe. They have the technology to do that. And they have the technology to send those on man probes to the moon, even to Mars. They seem to have a lot of problems, but they seem to have some technical prowess when it comes to doing that, when it comes to on man missions.
0: Okay, okay. So let's move on from there slightly and I say that your work has diversified out from there like you write a lot about a lot of different issues and you may not have focused as much on issues like the photographic evidence as other people have like Marcus Allen but you've touched on all of these and gone into various issues in depth how have you found the communication with people I don't doubt there's a lot of people out there who are skeptical cynical or even hostile uh, to your work have you found dialogue uh, to be productive in some ways do you find people come back to you uh, with a criticism and you sometimes think oh yeah they really got me there that's a good point or has it been a more fruitless experience than that if it's it's just people kind of chirping more inane criticisms
1: yeah everything i mean you can think of everything thrown into the mix i've had it thrown at me um i have a lot of support and i always like to thank the people who are listening that support my work and support the work of others including marcus allen uh, marcus allen is um uh, moon hoax researcher himself he's been doing it for 25 years he's actually the distributor for nexus magazine uh you've seen some of my videos with him there's also scott henderson here a lot and there's also um Bart Cipril, of course just put a book out to a, really, a, a really good read um we all take a different approach Bart april takes a different approach than i do but it's equally on my work rather is equally as good as his in terms of the approach that we take uh, but we all take different approaches but yes uh specific to me I've been threatened. I've been, um, I have one individual that said, I know where you live, you know, and I usually let that roll off. I knew going into this, I have no illusions about this. I knew that going in, I was going to be threatened, I was going to be ridiculed, I was going to be laughed at. And believe me, you have to be able to take that. You have to be able to roll it off because if you can't, then don't do this. Just get out of this line of research and go do something else. So yeah, you have to be able to take that. I I have to block people from my YouTube channel because of some of the threats and the derogatory remarks. But I would say probably 90% of the comments and the emails I get are supportive of what I'm doing.
0: Okay, just with regard to the threat, I feel I have to ask about that. Did that seem like some random individual who is just unhinged? Or did it seem like someone working for the CIA or something was was making that threat? Because I know Bob Sabrell. Um, And I can't verify this or not, but possibly in his book writes an incredible tale about being sectioned against his will and some asylum and having to break out of that and all sorts of things going on with him connected to the alphabet agency. So what was your sense of that?
1: I generally don't like to make comments about other people's work, but what I will say, and I read his book... And I sorry, sorry. I, that... I, I,
0: sorry I, I maybe I didn't ask quite quite around. You're welcome to comment on that. But uh, I, I meant more in terms of your own experience. What was your sense of the the threat you received? In terms of we, we were you implying there was a, a threat from the well? A I a don't know. Ship.
1: Yeah, I don't know if it's a threat from the CIA. I think CIA have bigger fish to fry right now. I don't think I'm number one on their top ten list. I suspect that some of the comments that I were getting were mixed. I, I think some of them were probably NASA shills. I don't know for sure. Maybe they were working for Google, or maybe they're just patriotic people who think that I'm defaming what their beliefs are. And I usually like to give people the benefit of the doubt. I mean, it's not an easy subject for people to listen to. You know, they when you value something, when you've had so much, when you felt inspired by an event in history, and then... Along comes Randy and says, "No, it was a hoax." I mean, I understand it's going to it's going to upset some people out there. So I've always prepared for that, and I and I, and I understand, I understand it, and I don't I don't take it personally. At first, I did. Uh, that's natural, it's human nature. But I've learned not to take it personally anymore. And I understand there's some emotions out there that, you know, it's fair. It's fair for people to say, "Hey, Randy, you're full of it. You don't know what you're talking about. You're not a rocket scientist." I get it. I understand that. My response to them is, is that I'm not telling you what to think. I'm not telling you what to believe. Um, all I'm asking you to do is do the research I did. Maybe you'll come to a different conclusion and maybe you'll come to the conclusion I did. But all I'm asking you to do is do your research.
0: Do you ever find any productive interactions with people who are on the other side of the fence in terms of do you feel that you've received criticism that's valid and have you adjusted your work accordingly or, or does that not exist really?
1: No, that has that does exist to, uh, with, with some individuals. I have had some interaction back and forth with um, maybe one or two. I can't say, I would say maybe about 10, 15% of people who disagree with me have been very civilized and want to talk about it. The others have been very borderline abusive and and threatening. Um, That seems to go with the territory. Like I said, I don't respond to them anymore. I've blocked them. I've got better things to do in my day than to sit here and argue with people. I'm not, look, I'm not out to change anybody's minds. I believe what I believe. And it's up to the reader to read my books or not read my books. That's up to them. But read, just research NASA. Go to NASA's website. Start looking at the documents. Start reading the books that actually support the Apollo missions. Stay away from the conspiracy books. Just read that alone, and you might come to a different conclusion. That's all I'm suggesting.
0: Okay, Randy, so I only really became interested in this beyond a kind of casual interest that everyone maybe has and maybe watches a documentary or two. Just a few months ago, when um, David Chandler and Don Davies published this article, and I don't know Don Davies, but I do know David Chandler. I've I've interviewed him on his work on 9-11, and they published this uh, article. With these three, what they saw as knockout punches to dismiss the moon landing hoax, and you know, I kind of took objections. I don't want to sort of personal sense, but just in the line, you know, I don't think it's very well argued. Okay, I don't think you that would be the way to go about it to predetermine what three cases are going to be the knockout punches, and I don't think they were really knockout punches. So this kind of um, got me interested, really, in the question of taking a step back from the question of well, did we go to the moon or not? To well, hang on, if we wanted to uncover that how would we go about it what questions should we be asking is it even possible for the average person who's not going to devote years of their life to rocketry or analysis of photographs or the geology of moon rocks to even come to a conclusion on that and i think another aspect of this is that most conspiracies around john f kennedy or 9-11 will fade into history i interviewed a fellow on the assassination of william mckinley the other month fascinating interview yes. who even go who like even that. knows who even knows about william mckinley now and his assassination like no, no so there are people now up to 25 years old who don't even remember 9-11 so all these things will fade into history with the exception of the moon landings and it seems to me that irrespective of whether men set foot on the moon or not as we pass the 50th anniversary of no return trips the number of people who are cynical of that is just going to go up and up and up and then the, the astronauts that um i think there's four remaining okay and they're all around 85 years old they're on the average life expectancy so even if they live to be the oldest men in the world we've got another 30 years and most people don't live to be the oldest men in the world and we're back in a world then where no one's walked on the moon all the people that grew up inspired by listening to this on the radio as children will eventually die off and you'll have a group of people who it's, it's more of a distant thing and i just wonder you know at some point when does it become like Maybe learning Santa Claus doesn't exist. People, well, irrespective of whether they went or not, people will have this feeling of, hang on a minute, a hundred years and no return verdict? Well, when is the upper limit? So what's your sense of uh, the issues that could potentially resolve this, uh, the, the best questions to ask to resolve this for for the general person who's, who's kind of interested in it?
1: Well, my first inclination is to fire back a question and ask, whose fault is this? I don't blame people for either being cynical or for being angry. I don't blame average people for this. This stops at the very doorstep of the power elite. They're the ones that created this. They're the ones that created this in the last several decades. Not you, not me, not my next door neighbor, the power elites. We saw evidence of this, abundantly clear evidence of this in the last three years. How we've been manipulated, attempts at mind control, threatened by the very people we put in office to represent us. And I think that a lot of this fault lies right at the uh, power elite doorstep. They're the ones responsible for this. They, they created such, I mean, the whole JFK assassination was was a fiasco from day one. I mean, the Warren Commission, All of, I've read it. And anybody who reads that and wants to be honest with themselves will know it was a whitewash. All you have to do, you don't have to read anything else. Just read the Warren report. It'll tell you right there. It'll tell you right there what a whitewash that was. The same with the uh, 9-11. Anybody who wants to keep an open mind, as Bart Sabril said, let go of your emotions, let go of your attachment, and you'll see it for yourselves. Right? And I get—I I do get a little fired up when, when, we're ta- when talking about this because I, I'm i asking people to put trust in our own abilities to search for themselves. Governments, the world was never like this. Governments are not there to control us. Governments are there to work for us. It's up to us to decide. And that means if governments come up and say, "Man, oh, they landed on the moon, okay, show me. Show me the proof. They killed JFK. Lee Harvey also killed JFK. Show me the proof. I read your proof. There's no proof. I read the books. I read the documents, NASA. And my opinion, I will say, okay, it's my opinion for people to want to get upset with me. It's my opinion There's no no conclusion. There is no evidence. Either way, uh, major conspiracies happen in the 20th century and there's a reason for that. Governments lie and they even admit they lie years later. How many times have we heard of Area 51? And how many times has the CIA and the government come out and say Area 51 doesn't exist? You're delusional. It doesn't exist. And what happened 20 years ago? They finally come out and said it exists. Area 51 exists. Now, is it because of alien spacecraft? No, I don't think so. I think it's just high tech experimental uh, US military aircraft that was being tested there. But the fact is, is we knew it existed. We knew it existed decades before the CIA finally admitted it. And why is it that we always seem to know us crackpots, I can put it that way, parentheses at it. We come out and say it didn't exist only to, uh, uh, that didn't happen only to come out 20 or 30 years later that it did happen. Right. So the onus is, as much and all as I fault governments, I also kind of have to put a little bit of blame on people. You have to start have to stop believing in higher authority and governments. Start believing in yourselves. What are your instincts telling you? Do what they tell you. Look into this for yourselves. There's no easy answer to this, Richard. Absolutely no easy answer. I'm willing to put the work in. I've researched uh, the Apollo missions. I spent many years researching it. I'm still researching it. I'm gonna be writing more books about it. And I am convinced based on the research that I have done that the Apollo missions were fake. Now you can ask me the reason why, and it could be, I can come up with several different reasons. But the bottom line is, start with the facts. The fact is, as far as I'm concerned, is they were fake. I did that, I based that on the research that I've done. Not a YouTube video, not the internet, in part, I, did, um, I do use that as a source, but most 90% of the sources of my books, and I've listed those sources, come from NASA's own information. The only thing I can say to people is, is that you have to put faith in yourselves to research this for yourselves, somebody tells you something black is white. Find out for yourself.
0: Okay, I'd like to ask you. This is probably the hardest question, and it's the same question, exactly the same question I put to anyone who really believes in the moon landing. Okay, and it it really is inspired by the philosopher of science Karl Popper. In that, what I looking at the outset of how can we address this question? Think, okay, well, we should try and put some kind of falsifiable premises in, right? So, what I would say to anyone who believes in this is to say, okay, well, how many years can go by? without a return journey before that becomes a problem? Is it 50? Is it 100? Is it 200? Because I think if you went back to 1972 in December when the Apollo 17 astronauts came back, and you then said, look, I don't think this all happened, and people around you said, Yo, yeah, you're crazy, I saw it on TV. If you said, well, I don't think they're going to go back for 10 years or 20 years, and then people would say, I think, well, that's mad, right? And if you said to them then, look, I'll make a better... If they don't go back in 50 years is that going to be a problem would that cause you to doubt that these missions just happened and it was all just to do with vietnam war propaganda and they don't need to go back now because the war is over i bet everyone would say look man you're crazy right the idea they're not going to go back in 50 years that's just it's routine now they've been like six times in the past three years there'll be a base there by the end of the decade there'll be there will be shopping malls on the moon by the turn of the century you know you know so but so that i want to ask that question now of people and say when does it become a problem? If we go through 100 years without a return journey, would you then say, you would the, the true believer, would you then say, well, okay, yeah, now now I've got to admit this is looking a bit fishy, right? And I might not even be around to see it, okay? But people can look at the internet then and, and see like, okay, people back in, in the 20s did make these bets, right? That they can now be called out upon. And just to reverse that then, I've heard Marcus Allen say, it was put to him, could, could they fake another journey, right? And he said, no, absolutely not. Because in spite of, you know, the increased uh, technological ability to do CGI and fake things nowadays, there, there's too many people who will be able to track it now and monitor it. And there's too many people who would call, right? So, you know, if, if there is now a return journey, then Marcus Allen has a problem. And he would have to say, well, he, he got that wrong. So that would bring his credibility into it. So I would like to ask you the same question of what what kind of things do you think could falsify your case? Like if, if suddenly NASA came up with photographs of the landing sites that were the same quality as I can get off Google Maps of my house, uh, would that then pose a problem for you? Do, do you see what I'm getting at here, Randy, that I, I want to, like both sides put put their cards on the table, so to speak?
1: Well, again, I just thought of another question when you were talking. Can you pick one aspect of society or technology in the last 200 years that was brought out to the benefit of society and then just stopped never there was never any further progression
0: no no i can sort of fudge that right in the the state poured vast amounts of money into the development of technology that there's no market use for not because it's not useful but because people cannot uh, it, there's no use for it at the cost it is at so it's not surprising to me that when the state pours a lot of money into something, there could be a lull afterwards. If I was to, you know, I'm playing devil's advocate here, right, yeah. on that, to a degree. Yeah. At the same time, as I say, I don't think if you'd have said to someone in 1972, there will be no return journeys in the next 50 years. And even then, there's no really solid plan to go back. And tell me if you think I'm wrong, but I don't think anyone would have believed you. Not anyone you could have found then who would
1: have taken that seriously. Exactly. And and, and just to elaborate on my question, most um, advances in technology happen organically uh, for society, and you could pick anything in the last uh, 200 years, and it just it picks it takes on a life of its own. But not so with the Apollo moon missions. And if somebody had said as you correctly, and I, I agree with you, if you um, back in 1972, if somebody had said, "Oh, it's not going to happen for another 50 years," you would have been laughed at. But instead what we get is, is that we're going back in 10 years or no, we're going back in 15 years. Oh, but when that 15 years comes, and he said, no, actually we're going back in 10 years and that 10 years comes and so on and so forth. It's actually become a Monty Python skit. In my opinion, the last 50 years, the, the whole Apollo moon mission program has become for me, a Monty Python skit. I mean, things happen to you. You're just not looking, you're not paying attention. You're in denial. I don't know what you want to call it, but the look at look at it this way the manned missions manned space missions would be the next step for mankind i mean it would be the next step for us to explore the cosmos if i can put it that way and there was an opportunity as you said earlier for nasa and u.s military to expand on that to expand on what they had achieved back in 1972 nothing has been done we're half a century later and still nothing has been done um, what was it four years ago trump as far as I'm concerned, lay down the gauntlet. And he told NASA, you did it once, do it again. And we will give you to 2024. And we're, right, we're on the doorstep of 2024. And I know we're near preparing for a launch. How long is this going to continue before people realize that there's something seriously wrong here?
0: Well, that, that's why I think I'm keen for people to actually state numbers, because I see people like, I mean, on one of the, the threads I was reading about this, I saw someone saying, "Oh, you know, these people who denied the landings, they're going to look pretty stupid come 2026 when when NASA are back there. And I'm thinking, well, if it gets to 26 and they're not, is this person again going to say, oh, my God, I was wrong? No, no, they're just going to say, well, they're going to look pretty stupid by 2030 when NASA are back. You know, it, just, it just rolls on until people actually pick a number and say, OK, by this date, if they haven't done it, then there's a problem.
1: Yeah, I I don't think and I don't think so. I think what's going to happen is um, human thinking has to evolve. This problem is not going to be resolved. Um, There's there's no there's no magic answer or magic response to that question. I think it's human thinking. It's our ability for discernment. I think that has to evolve. And I'm beginning to see signs that that's evolving now in the last three years. I have a lot of opinions about the last three years, but I am seeing some things come out of that now. And uh, you know, um, you're right. I mean, it's another 10 years. Well, by 2035, you're going to be really embarrassed. But then I have an easy answer to that. But you're using the same technology that you used 50 years ago. The technology itself has never advanced. In fact, the technology for the space shuttle, you could argue, actually goes back several hundred years. The solid, solid, solid fuel boosters have been around for several hundred years. The technology that was used for the space shuttle is the same technology. In fact, it's almost the same exact engines that they're using on the Artemis rocket to launch the manned missions, and that's going back four decades, and yet they're still having major problems with that. Well, the the, uh, logical question is, well, why are you having problems with it now when it worked well 40 years ago, let alone 50 years ago when we're talking about the Apollo missions, the F-1 engines were never used again. They were taken out of service after 1975 the last launch of an F-1 engine. And then in 1981, you had the launch of the space shuttle and those engines are now being used on Artemis rocket to launch the upcoming, let's just put it, the upcoming manned missions to the moon. And they're now having problems with that. So the question is any logical person, any reasonable person um, with any reasonable level of intelligence has to ask what is going on here? I've had one argument I want to bring up, one argument I have put to me recently. I've talked about this in the book, a lot of the documents for the Saturn V and schematics for all of the hardware have been destroyed. And I don't say lost, I say destroyed, a lot of evidence that they've been destroyed. And people will say to me, well, you know what, Randy, we don't have the plans anymore for our 1950 DeSoto. So did that not exist because those plans are destroyed? Of course not. But you built on that car, you've built on that 1950s technology in the last several decades, and you refined that technology. The same with aircraft. Aircraft have refined their technology from props to jets, although it hasn't seemed to have gone any further except for some refinements in computer software. So there has been an argument to be made that, you know, when it comes to the specific to the rocket industry, there's been no... Uh, there's been no progression at all in terms of the technology. There's been no building on that technology. And that technology itself has been destroyed before we've had a chance to build on it.
0: I, want, I just want to ask one technical question, I'm sort of referring to this point of falsification, and also on the, the satellite photos right now. Am I right in saying, I've heard you say that when we have these um, these photos of the landing sites come back, they... Don't really show anything, to my mind. They're they're more of a reputation than they are a proof, because I can look at a Google satellite image of my car and remember what car I was driving in 2011 or whatever, right? But the lunar satellites that have gone over, for one, NASA seems very disinterested in photographs. Like it would almost be, it's almost beneath them to take a photo of Apollo. Is who would be interested in that? But the ones we do have, and there's there's one from the Indian Space Agency, and I think. I think I'm right in saying NASA have done one flyover off them, but they're just pixels, right? You can't make out any detail at all of the landing sites. And am I right in saying that you say that they cannot take photos or they cannot fake photos even because they cannot estimate the wear and tear of what happens when you leave metal and a fabric flag out in the the heating up to 200 degrees and down to minus 200 degrees for thousands and thousands of time, over over 50 years, that it's impossible for them to uh, either take or fake photographs now.
1: Yeah, and one of the reasons why I personally think, and it's just my opinion, and I've said this to other people too, I I really think the photographs and film are a red herring when it comes to the Apollo missions. Um, NASA seems to have a ready response to that, and that's one of the reasons why, for the most part, I stay away from it. I did put a little, a little bit of it in my second book, and I talk about it in the appendix. But for the most part, stay away from it for that very reason. But yes, I did say that. I said that in my book. I did say, and that was just my own assumption, my own logical conclusion is the reason why they cannot take, if there was. they can. So let's just pick one. Let's, let, let's go with 1972. Let's go with the last Apollo mission. Um, you have the lander there. You have the flag and so on and so forth. There is no atmosphere on the surface of the moon. There's no atmosphere surrounding the moon. It's not even protected. It is protected to some degree, depending on the moon's position to the Earth by the Earth's magnetic field. But for the most part, it is exposed to the elements of space outside of Earth's magnetic field, depending on what orbit it's in. So you're talking 50 years of degradation of the uh, lunar lander on the surface being bombarded by cosmic rays, solar rays, micrometeorites, um, so on and so forth, heat, coronal mass ejections, solar flares, you name it. You can name any of them through the line and that equipment is being bombarded. So the question is, nobody knows for sure what the wear and tear would be on that equipment left on the lunar surface from 50 years of bombardment from all the elements of space. And NASA is not in a position to really fake it and make that determination so rather than face that they'll go around it and photoshop what we see and i mean i'm not a pho- photographic expert i don't pretend to be but a couple of things jumped out at me with that article you sent me by uh, that author
0: Oh, no, david chandler and don davis
1: uh, one of the things that jumped out at me was point number two when he said multiple high resolution photographs from lunar orbiters of all the apollo landing sites i mean for crying out loud you know what? I'm not a photographer. I'm far away from photography. That's why I never talk a lot about it. But even, even just using my eyes, my common sense, I can tell you, and I can observe, and that is not high resolution photographs we're seeing.
0: Well, it's not as high resolution as what Google can do of your house. That, so you said NASA had a yeah. ready answer for that. I, I don't know what that is. What What's the ready answer for why we don't have photographs or that are as good as the ones Google give you?
1: Well, I think the ready answer is—I just gave it to you. I think in terms of they would have to duplicate the wear and tear, and I don't. No, sorry, they're their
0: their ready answer, like you—you you said NASA have a ready answer. Why do they oh, say I'm they can't? They
1: have, a, they have a ready answer for everything. I don't know specific to what this oh, okay. ready answer is for that, but I'm just saying in general, they usually have a ready answer for everything. I
0: mean, they could be something. It could be something like it's different taking photographs from a satellite orbiting the moon to the Earth for some reason. I don't yeah. know, but I just—I would just assume that the photographic quality could be the same or better than what what Google are capable of taking, and it clearly isn't. So that, that just seems very strange to me.
1: If you go back to the pre-Apollo missions, I call them the pre-Apollo missions, back in the mid-1960s when they were using all man missions to map the surface of the Moon, and they were basically doing that actually to get as much detail as possible in order to make plaster replications of it here on Earth. They say for, for simulation, but you know, we can go down that road another day, but I just want to talk specifically about the photos that were taken by the lunar orbiter, I'm not the lunar orbiter in two thousand nine I talked about the one in nineteen sixty five and I posted a couple of those in my second book and you've got a, you have a lot of clarity and detail mm, I, I yeah. mean really impressive photos which I actually put in my book and are impressive enough in the book alone, and that's not even enhanced. You have a lot of detail. Compare that to 50 years later, and you're not seeing that. And as you, I think, as you said in your podcast, anyone with a home, with a with a basic home computer and some good software can Photoshop this.
0: Yeah, so it just didn't strike me as a proof that it's almost more like a disproof. Because well, where are the photos? Like no one is that wouldn't be the 50th anniversary, and no one wants a photo of that. It's not like there are probes flying around there anyway. So yeah, it doesn't make sense to me.
1: Yeah. And, and I mean, I mean, there's other comments that they made in our article too, like lunar rocks are depleted of volatile materials, most, most, notably water. But then again, like, and I'm surprised that this individual, because he has quite a, uh, quite a good background, an academic background, and that he didn't do his research because I have in a book, I that was published, like, I don't know, probably 20, 30 years ago. And I think I posted, I actually talked about this in my book. They indeed did find water particles in moon rock and he's saying there isn't. And you know, I, I, I what I guess I'm getting at is that this, there's is conflicting information coming out. And I talked a lot about this in my books about the conflicting data that NASA puts out from within NASA, not just outside of NASA but from within NASA, you get conflicting data about the Van Allen Bells, you get conflicting data about water are not in the moon rocks, all kinds of conflicting data. NASA itself doesn't seem to be able to get its message straight. And I think that in part, Um, aside from what I have looked into myself in terms of researching, creates a distrust from people, from many people when it comes to NASA and its claim of MAD missions outside of low-Earth orbit.
0: Okay, I'm going to start to wrap up with a double header of a question. The first one really is, how do you keep your sanity in this? I don't mean you specifically, but anyone, because if you go looking on any platform for moon landing hoax videos, you're not going to click too many times before you find a space station hoax video, and you start watching space station hoax videos, then you're going to get all the other probes of hoax, and then you're on a slippery slope to space is faked, right? That, that's, where you, that's, that's where you go. And some people won't only really go there on YouTube, they'll go there on the, in their minds. And there is a certain logical chain to that, right? Because, well, if NASA faked the six Apollo missions, uh, seven Apollo missions, it's not likely that they were completely honest about everything else. Come on, there's, there's some other fakery somewhere there. So then well, where does it end? All the space station shots filmed in an airplane and, and this kind of thing. So uh, how do you get off that slippery slope at some point yourself there? And what would you say to other people who might struggle with that, quite frankly, if they, they get on this train?
1: My response usually is just not to go there. I mean, it's like the flat earth theory thing too, right? Uh, I've been accused of being a flat earth theorist and that couldn't be farther from the truth. I just mentioned earlier in this interview that I believe in the physics. And I believe in the physics of our everyday life. I fly airplanes and I'm convinced that the heliocentric version, a uh, theory of the universe as fact, I accept it as fact, right? And it's been updated a little bit since then. But when it comes to questions like, you know, the space, you know, the space station, well, there's something up there, we could see it. Mm. So there's something up there, I accept that. Whether now, whether astronauts are up there for a year at a time and come down, that's another story because uh, I have looked into this in great detail and I'm just wondering if maybe they're fudging that a little bit, but I have to accept that there are some capabilities to low earth orbit. Uh, We seem to have some capabilities with that. So I accept that. And in terms of all the other stuff, I keep my feet on the ground, you know, I just, you know, I like the way it's evolving. Life is a fascinating experience. And I'm sorry, but it's not as dull as people want it to be, and it's not as ordinary as people want it to be. It's a fascinating experience. That, well, that's what we're here for. We're here to learn and to use your discernment. And when I get those questions, I love it because it makes me think. You know, just because I may not agree with somebody or I don't like the question, doesn't mean I'm going to start storm off in a, in a rut. No, I like the questions. I invite the questions. If I don't know for sure, I'll tell you I don't know for sure. Is the IIS uh, International Space Station being faked? I don't know. Maybe. But my hunch is it's not. So I'll go with that and I'll leave it at that. And then, you know, we can argue about this back and forth till, um, you know, till the sun comes up. And still, I just see, you know, it goes back to what I said earlier. I just, I I find it fascinating. It's not a difficult question for me because I'll, I'll, I'll get involved in it. I'll even talk about the flat earth theory. I don't agree with you on a flat Earth theory, but I'll talk about it. Um, there's a lot of other subjects that I'm actually writing about right now that I'm going to be putting in a book, and some of them are going to be very controversial. Uh, flat Earth theory is not one of them, folks. I'm not a flat art theorist. Let's get that off there. Let's clear that up right now. But there's a lot of other topics that I am looking into that may have some merit. I find it fascinating. The more, the better. It's, it's, it's a great life. People only realize what we have, what we we're seeing, we take so much for granted. Look around, you know. Look at the colors. Look look at what life has to offer, and and look at the opportunities and the discussions that 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 come with it. It's never boring if you take that approach. And I happen to now Bart Sabrell, I disagree on one thing. He 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 feels on the fringes of society. I'm no longer feeling that way. There's a lot of people that are now starting to ask questions. And that's what I meant about the last three years, is that a lot of people have woken up. They're asking a lot of questions. And I like to think I was there before then because of my journey. And it sounds like you were too. And it sounds like a lot of other people were, but the majority were the majority were not. Now you're seeing a lot more people, possibly even the majority, now questioning their actual reality they're questioning everything and i think that's good i think it's healthy It's what we need
0: yeah and if they're not themselves they know someone is it's it's a very different world from three years ago in many bad ways but in some really good ways too i think in terms of the the questioning of the state that has been mainstreamed um over the past three years is is unprecedented
1: you're absolutely right my wife and I knew pretty well going into this when it first started back in 2020 that something was seriously wrong here. It wasn't what they were telling us. It was an eye-opening experience for myself and for her because we started seeing people who were succumbing to the the onslaught from governments and the propaganda, if I could put it that way, and uh, becoming very frightened. There, you know, um, in every which way. And then when the uh, when the substance came out, the vaccine came out. We saw a lot of people taking that and now we're seeing the effects of that and it's been devastating for them and it's been devastating watching what was happening to these people, people we care about, you know, and I don't ridicule anybody for, for taking it, I don't ridicule anybody for falling prey to the mass onslaught of propaganda, it was a very powerful tool that governments were using around the world. But the good thing that's coming out of this is that people's eyes are opening. And I'm seeing it now more with those who are vaccinated and who actually complied. They're the ones that are coming out and questioning more than ever. They're the ones that are now actually, it just, it's almost as if they're breaking out of a prison they've been in all their lives and they're seeing things for the very first time. are also dealing with some harsh realities, which is unfortunate. But their minds are opening and their eyes are opening. And all we can do is be there for them. And do not ridicule people. We're not here to tell somebody I told you so. We're here, we're here to help as much as we can. I I, I have to be honest, I deal with a lot of emotions because I've seen what's happening to my family, I'm seeing what's happening to my friends, I'm seeing what's happening to my next door neighbors. And um, but I'm seeing a silver lining, if I can put it that way. Um, it is an awakening process that humanity needed to go through. I don't, I, I'm not saying that I'm happy it happened. I'm not. I, I think that um, there's a lot of people that should be called to speak for their crimes. I, I'm hoping for tribunals. We're here in Canada right now. And Canada is, is what, 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 it was getting scary over here for a while. It's starting to, I'm starting to relax a little bit now, but it was getting frightening. Um, seeing what was happening because I, I for me, it was watching, it was, it was like watching a movie, a horror movie playing out in front of my eyes because I, I only, this, in this case, I knew the ending, right? And I knew what this, I knew I knew what this vaccine was going to do to people. And this is another lesson in discernment is that you have to ask questions. You have to ask yourself, why are you taking this? You, you have to step back and stop acting on emotions and use a little bit of discernment as well. Emotion is good, but don't let it, rule you don't let it don't let it overrule your common sense and your discernment you need to mix it in with that and that's where in other words you have to find a balance and but as i said earlier i am a little bit more encouraged now about where we are going as a species and the fact that many more people have now woken up i don't think as many people would have woken up if this didn't happen in the last three years and we're
0: no definitely
1: not and we're seeing it now in a mass scale and mass level and that in of itself is encouraging
0: yeah and that's really what i like about i'm drawn to have these kind of conversations randy because i notice people are waking up but in many ways they then assert new boundaries on i'll go this far and no further so some of the like for example i've been interested to interview people who are very cynical about virology as a science and during the pandemic and this is not something i knew anything about before and I've received like a lot of criticism for talking to people like that, right? Because these these are the lunatic, fr- again, another another lunatic fringe, right? And I'm not saying they're right, but I have determined and discerned for myself that they have very interesting comments to make about the science of orology and how it can be corrupted. And are they all the way right? I don't know, but they're they're, they're getting a lot right. And um, so it interests me because a lot of people won't touch them, right? And that's what I see with these things. Like people get into geopolitics and they will be interested in the Kennedy assassination and consider it to be a CIA conspiracy, but they won't go near the moon landings. Okay. Cause that's too far. And I don't want to tell people that you should believe that no one went to the moon or you should believe the viruses don't exist or anything, but I want to just question where we put those lines and why we put them there, you know, and, and what, what is it like to playfully step over them for a while and look at that next little bit uh, without fearing that we go into some sort of psychosis where we, we think we're living on a flat earth or something, you know? Yeah. So that, that's my interest in, in pushing these limits.
1: Oh, exactly. And just to be practical for a second, I mean, I, I, I talked a very good example in my first book when three Harvard scientists back in 1968 had uh, done a study in heart disease and they had concluded that um, sugar was the biggest driver in, in contributing to heart disease than anything else. But the sugar industry, uh, on a whole, got a hold of this information and intervened before the report was released, and paid these three Harvard scientists twenty-five thousand dollars. I think it was twenty-five thousand dollars each uh, to falsify their report that it wasn't—it wasn't sugar; it was fats that were causing heart disease. And that, that, by the way, was reported in JAMA, the Journal of American Medical Association, the most prestigious. Uh, uh, Medical Association in the United States, and fun, and interesting enough, it was reported by the mainstream media and said, "Don't ever trust people again." I actually said this, and this was a year or two before the pandemic, the so-called pandemic. I say I have more opinions on that, but anyway. So, for the last fifty years, and when we talk about people, you know, as I said earlier, people accuse me of not being a rocket scientist, and you're you know, you're not a physicist, and how can you, you don't even know what you're talking about? Well, here's three Harvard scientists. That were paid to falsify their report on heart disease and they ended up influencing millions of doctors and people in the last 50 years that the culprit was fats not sugar and harmed millions of people in the process and but because those people had the title after the name doctor degree whatever you want to call it they were believed and it never occurred to people that these very uh, accredited professionals were bought off. And that's what we've seen now in the last three years. And that's what people are waking up to.
0: Okay, Randy, thank you very much for this. Maybe tell people where they can find out more about you and get your books and so on. I will certainly link to all that in the info box below, but just verbally let people know how to get.
1: Sure. Yeah. I'm on a YouTube channel, as you know, Randy Walsh, and I'm also on BitChute. Um, It's good to have a backup channel. My books can be found on Amazon. So just go to amazon.com and you'll find my books there. And uh, I've got other books coming out soon. So that's another topic for another day. In the books, you, you can actually access my email and send me an email from there and my Facebook page as well. Randy, thank you very much. You're welcome, Richard. I quite enjoyed it.